Can I know God personally? What a ridiculous question. There's people that are sitting here and probably in all the churches that are participating this week asking that question and saying, what do you mean, can I know God personally? You've grown up in church from the time that you were an infant. Your entire life you've heard phrases such as it's not about religion, it's about a relationship, and asked, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? For some of you, the idea of relationship with God was probably stenciled on your diapers and, or di- a diaper bag and on your baby blankets, and you've never known anything other than it's about a relationship. What do you mean? Why are we wasting our time asking a question, can I, have a rela- can I know God? Can I have a personal relationship with God? And yet there are others who would consider it to be a ridiculous question for the very reason is that if there is a God, you know that by very nature of being God, he is ineffable. He is incapable of being sensed and grasped and understood. We can't see him. We can't taste him. We can't smell him. There's no way that we can encounter him and experience him. And so even if there is a God, then... You know, what's the difference between a God like that and none at all? There is no relationship with that. It's like having a relationship with the wind. And then there's others who are here that no doubt may wonder, why would God even want to know me? Some of the stuff that I've pulled in my past, the man or the woman that I am, not the one that I want to be, but the one that when I'm honest uh, that I am. Why would a God, especially one who is good and who's holy and perfect, why would he want to have a relationship with, with me? In the past couple of weeks, I saw a, an old cartoon from Peanuts. Charlie Brown speaking with Lucy. And Charlie confesses to Lucy that sometimes I, I struggle with a sense of being inferior to other people. And Lucy, in what appears to be a, a moment of rare compassion, she said, Charlie, you don't worry about that. Everybody has those feelings. And so Charlie, hopeful, clinging to that word of encouragement, said, you mean everybody struggles with the idea of being inferior to other people? And Lucy says, no, we all feel that you're inferior to everyone else. (laughs) But at one time or another, if not all, most of us are Charlie Brown, whether we admit it or not. The idea that there is a, a God who would love us and want to have a relationship with, a God who clearly is superior and yet who would love us and draw us into a relationship, it almost seems too good to be true. And also among us, no doubt, are Lucy's. Being a church that is conservative, reformed, PCA, we draw lots of Lucy's. We can fall into being Lucy. I can be a Lucy. Where I am so sure of my superiority that I have no sense, no comprehension of my need of grace. And therefore, the grace that is mine, it is not valued, it is not appreciated because I am broken in thinking that I am better than I really am. And I would think, and many would think, Lucy would say, can I, you know, can I have a relationship with God? Well, of course I can have a relationship with God. Why would he not want me? What a gem. What a gift I would be to him. And yet 
that brokenness as a reflection of somebody who is as much in need of grace as anyone else. The gospel tells us, the, the good news is that through Jesus Christ, you and I can know God. And we can have a vibrant, living, personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Rather than just simply resting on that and, and, and building on that, that's the premise, that is the promise. I want to go back and explore this question, and we'll do so touching on, on four uh, relatively short points. The first we'll look at is the possibility of knowing God. The second will be the pathway to knowing God. The third will be the priority of knowing God. And then finally, we will look at the practices of knowing God. And so we begin this morning with the possibility of knowing God. That's the question that's before us. Can I know God personally? Well, the scripture tells us very clearly that we are able to know God. Paul says in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, For what can be known about God is plain to them, to people, because God has shown it to us, to people. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So all people are without excuse. See, this is a very important claim the Apostle Paul is making. It's the foundation. It's the, it's the launching point of the epistle that he writes that is the most profound theological treatise that has ever been penned in all of history. And in that, he begins with this idea is that God in creation has revealed himself to such a degree that there is nobody that is left without excuse to recognizing that there is a God and we can know that there is a God. And we can not only know that there is a God, but because his attributes, we are told, have been seen, particularly his power and his divine nature, that they have not only been uh, revealed, but been perceived. In other words, we've been able to see them, that there is no one on the face of the earth, no one who's ever walked on the face of the earth, who is left without an excuse for knowing that there is a God. But the question we're asking is, is a more personal than can we know there is a God? But is it possible for us to know that God and to know him in a very personal way? Rather than appealing to the Romans' broad category, which lays a foundation for the possibility of knowing God, we look at the text that we read earlier this morning, where John borrowing and playing on the poetry of the opening of the book of Genesis, which we are told what took place in the beginning because John is telling us now in the person of Jesus Christ there is a new beginning. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word then came and dwelt among us. There is a promise through implication that we are able to know God. Now, we need to understand that what John is saying here is more than what we might initially think when we look at this text and when we hear it. See, the word that John uses here for word is the word logos. It's very intentional. The Greeks in John's day believed that there was some kind of divine intelligence or there was some force. So kind of think Star Wars. You Star Wars people, you'll like that. May the force be with you. There was a force that was in control of 
everything and held everything together. And John uses this word, logos, which is the word for force, that the Greeks use for force, essentially to say to the world that was around them, hey, this force that you recognize is controlling everything. Well, this force has become one of us. This force has come to earth. I love the way that Eugene Peterson wrote it in his uh, translation, The Message, and maybe I'll rephrase that. I love the way Eugene Peterson wrote that in his very, very loose translation, The Message. But nevertheless, it is still great because here's what he says about verse 14. The word became flesh, uh, word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So that puts it in a very personal level. He's moved into our neighborhood. I've said in the past, and I continue because it it just always uh, um, amazes me, but Jesus, who we're told in Philippians, who in very nature is God, but did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, Jesus moved out of the ultimate gated community, ultimate gated neighborhood, into the ultimate decaying neighborhood. He moved out of heaven, which is the ultimate gated neighborhood, to the fallen earth, which still reflects some of its original beauty, and yet it's vandalized. So if you go into some old cities, even like Petersburg, uh, not far from here, and you see the beauty of the old architecture, it still is shining through, but it's behind all of the rubble and all the decay and all the ugliness. That's the earth that Jesus chose to leave heaven to come here for. Now, why would anybody leave the ultimate gated community to move into a decaying community? Well, one is because you can't afford anymore to live in the ultimate gated community. But that, since he is God, wasn't the issue here. And so the only other reason that somebody would make the decision to move out of an ultimate gated community and to move into our neighborhood, our decaying neighborhood, is so that they would be able to become known by the neighbors and to know the neighbors in order to establish relationship. And that's really the implication that John is making here in this passage as he begins his, 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 um, his gospel, is that Jesus, who is God, has moved into our neighborhood for the possibility of us having a relationship. So the question is, can I know God personally? Is that possible? The answer is, according to John here, it is certainly possible. The foundation has been laid. Second, we consider what's the pathway. We now know there's a possibility, but... How does that happen? How do we get that relationship? And, and no, no question, the implication of, of John 1, I mean, why would he move into the neighborhood and, unless he was going to get to know and so that we would be able to have the, the connection with him? But in a passage we looked at um, uh, several weeks ago in John 14, verses 5 through 11, listen to the conversation that is going on here, taking place between Jesus and his disciples. Now, the context is Jesus had just declared Uh, that he is going to go away and he's going to prepare a place for his followers. And then he makes the odd statement, and and you know the way. So picking up in verse 5, Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip, kind of picking up on that, said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And Jesus is making some very profound and radical statements here in this passage. First of all, the idea that he says, I am, it's one of the, what's called the I am statements. By the adopting of that language, I am, he's declaring himself to be God. We don't see it as clearly, but the people who he was speaking with, their response to it was quite, uh, quite obvious. So if anybody tells you that Jesus never declared himself to be God, take him to the Gospel of John, take him through the seven I am statements and say, this is a beginning. Um, this was not anything veiled. He was very clearly declaring himself to be God by saying, I am. And when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's declaring himself to be God. But he's also saying something that is really profound here because he's, giving, uh, he's, he's using language that we would talk about a, a radical identification that he has with the Father. He's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, we tend to read that as conversations that we might have. Some of you look exactly like your fathers. Maybe you have a similar voice, and now you've recognized, as my sons seem to lament, they are adopting some of the habits that they promised themselves they never would. And, and so people have told you your whole life that, you know, you're, you're the spitting image. And so, you know, it's like seeing your father back when he was your age. But Jesus is saying something that is far more profound. He's saying, if you know me, you know the Father. And it's not about introduction. He's, he's saying, if you know me, you, you know the Father. If you know what I'm like, you know what the Father is like. And, and, he, and he solidifies this when he's saying, don't you get it? I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. Now, our minds don't comprehend this identification, that Jesus, while being distinct, is also in such unity that it is indistinguishable, that if you see him, if you know him, you know God the Father. And Jesus says, so if you know me, you know God the Father, and I am the way. And so the question that we ask is, can I know God personally? And the answer to that is, according to what Jesus is saying, is if you know Jesus, you know God. You know God the Father in a personal way. And I'm struck as I look at this text because the fact that Jesus is constantly teaching us that we are to think of God, the one who created all things, the one who is transcendent above all things, uh, the one who we can't comprehend but think of him as a father, our father. And that, for some of us, can create difficulty in understanding just the, the beauty of what Jesus is inviting us into. For those who are wrestling with, can I know God personally, and what would that be like? There's a scene in the film Dead Poets Society, 
where one of the main characters, Neil, comes back to campus and finds his roommate, Todd, sitting kind of off to himself, clearly not happy, discouraged, frustrated, somewhat pensive, and he's holding a, a large gift on his lap. And, and Neil comes to his roommate and asks him, well, what's, what's that you got? And Todd says, it's a birthday gift from my father. It's a desk set. And you can watch the conversation, and you know that he's not happy with the gift. And he elaborates a little bit. He said, you know, the thing is, he gave me the same thing last year. And I didn't even like it then. But as you watch the interaction taking place, you recognize the frustration that he has, the the cause of the frustration, the root of the frustration, is not so much in the disappointing gift, practical, useful, necessary, but certainly not inspiring and delightful, at least not to him. But the deeper problem is not the disappointment of the gift, but the fact that the gift was sent in place of the father. The father himself didn't come. The father didn't communicate with the son. He just sent him a gift, which almost was thoughtless because he wasn't aware, apparently wasn't aware. He gave him the same thing uh, the year before. And so we see little hints of the nature of the relationship or the lack of relationship that he has with the father. And it doesn't take long before you recognize that the root of the problem here is not just, you know, a gift that nobody wants as a, for a birthday gift. Is that the relationship that he has is really absent, and the relationship is marked by getting and giving and getting stuff more than any personal interaction that he has with his father. And the reason I find this important is because it's, it's likely that there are many of us here this morning for whom that little story is a a reflection of our our view of the relationship that we can have with God as our Father. What I mean by that is that we have either become conditioned or we have never gone beyond the idea that the relationship, we, we get the idea that the relationship is primarily about God giving us stuff. Pretty much everybody has prayed you know, very simple prayers. Even non-believers pray some of the simple prayers, parking spaces. You know, that item that you want but everybody else wants, and so you're praying that when you get to wherever it is, that there will at least be one more on the shelf, not broken, not returned, but just something that you can get, even if you're the only one that gets it uh, that's in the store that day. And I'm not really suggesting there's anything wrong with those kinds of prayers. God invites us to pray all kinds of things, and not only for the major necessities of life, but even the things that bring us pleasure. He's inviting us to pray for all all sorts of things. But what's wrong, the problem rises when that is the extent of the relationship that we have with God, when it's basically about stuff. We know that God is there, He in some ways cares, we're connected, he's taken responsibility for us, and we let him know when we have need, and he provides for our needs, and sometimes he gives us stuff that's a little nicer than others, but the whole relationship is built on the asking and the getting and the giving of stuff. 
Just as in that movie, so it is true with our relationship with God, is that getting God's stuff is no replacement for the relationship that we want and need and can have with a father. And what Jesus is telling us through these passages is that he is the way into a relationship with God the Father. And that fact that he's saying we are to consider God Father is an indication not that he is just a provider, but that God wants to have a very intimate, a very personal relationship with those who belong to him. Some of you know the name Jack Miller. His son Paul is a friend of this church. Jack was a professor at uh, Westminster Seminary for a time and founder of then World Harvest, now Surge Ministry. But here's what Jack said related to this question. To be near God and to have God near us is the whole purpose of the human existence. And yet in the person of Jesus Christ, we are able to know God. He is the way. And yet he's the truth. He's the reality. He's the life. It is not only found through him, it is found in him. But by, because by knowing Jesus, by being in Jesus, by believing in him, we know God the Father. He becomes our Father. We have that relationship. So it's not only possible, but there is a way. There's a pathway. I want to shift gears to something very, I'm going to touch on it very quickly, but the priority, you know, we can know that. And many of us knew, most of us do know that. We can have the relationship with God and that Jesus is the way. You can turn with me if you'd like to John 17. It's actually a passage we're going to look at more in depth next week. And in verse 3, Listen to what Jesus says relating to the idea of the priority of knowing God. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you hear the implication? Do you hear the priority of, of this, of what Jesus is speaking to his disciples not only then, but of every age. When he says, this is life. And again, we've talked about this before, but it's not bios, it's not your biology. You know, you're, you're breathing, you're eating, your digestive system is working and doing things we don't want to talk about before lunch. I mean, hopefully that's working. Without that, you don't have anything. But the word here in the Greek is zoe. This is life. It means something totally different. I hadn't really thought about it until this morning, so it's not in my notes, but that back in the, in the same Dead Poet Society movie, there's a, an incredible scene where Robin Williams' character, and he's the, the primary teacher of this, and he's trying to get the attention and help the, 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 the boys at this all-boys school to come to understand uh, the importance of what he's teaching, and he's teaching them poetry. And they're all preparing themselves to go to Ivy League schools where they can become you know, captains of industry and lawyers and politicians and presidents. I mean, important people doing the things of, of life. And Robin Williams says, boys, pursuit of engineering and the law, these are noble endeavors. 
but beauty and art and music and poetry. That is what we live for. In other words, there's things that are necessary for us to do and important jobs, and many of you do them, and you do them well, and we are blessed by it. But why do we do that? We don't live for those things. We live for something that is transcendent, something that is greater, something that is beautiful. And that's what Zoe describes. And so what Jesus is saying is, this is life. This is what you dream of. Nobody dreams of their biological function unless it's not working. We dream of joy and beauty, something that takes your breath away. And that's what he's describing here. And this is what we all long for. This is what we all want. And Jesus says, this is what you're dreaming of. This is life. This is what you want. Here's how it's, where it's found. In knowing God. In Jesus Christ, the one he sent, who is the way, the truth, and the way that we are able to know him. He's saying, this is the priority because not only is God worthy of it, but this is the necessity for everything else that we desire and that we are so prone to go chasing after either assuming or ignoring God or simply going to him and asking for him to give it. It's not found from him. It is found in him. See, the priority is knowing God. As Miller said, that's the essence of our human existence. And so it is a priority. It needs to be the priority of our lives is to know the God whom we can know through Jesus Christ. And Jesus has not only made it possible, but he has made it reality when we, are, when we trust him. So now we know him. How do we live? What are some of the practices of knowing God? Listen to this wisdom from a man named Brother Lawrence who wrote The Practice of the Presence of God long ago. We must know before we can love. In order to know God, we must often think of him. And when we come to love him, we shall then also think of him often. For our heart will be with our treasure. And so what Brother Lawrence is telling us is, look, what is the practice of knowing God? Practicing the presence of God is to think about God. Because when we think about God, then we are able to love. We can't love without thinking. And there are practices in our lives that are to be cultivated. For most of you that are not new, but... This is an opportunity today to reinforce, recommit them in your lives that will enable us to think of God, to experience God, to love God, and to find that we have our treasures from him because our treasures are in him. He is our treasure. The first is very simple. I would say faith. I mean, that's what the scripture says, that we need to believe. Now, it's not only something we do in the past, but there's something we do ongoing. Are we believing God? Are we believing in God? Are we believing in the gospel, which reconciles us to God, that brings us into the presence of God, which is a revelation of the, the character, the nature, and the love, and the glory of God, all in that gospel? But faith is like a coin that has another side to it, and faith also comes with repentance. 
We don't talk about that a lot because, well, frankly, it's a bummer. We talk about repentance, that means we're talking about something we didn't do right. Who wants to talk about that? But by not talking about it, we miss out on the reality that repentance is a gift. It is a grace that God has given to us. It is only when we recognize faith in relation to repentance does the faith reflect the full beauty that God created it for. And it's not just my concoction. I love the imagery of the Puritan Thomas Watson who says, faith and repentance are the two wings by which we fly toward heaven. We have a few people in here who fly. Mike, how does a plane go with one wing? I could fly a plane with one wing as well as a pilot because we're going to tank no matter what. So faith and repentance always go together. Today is Reformation Sunday, for those of you who weren't aware and for those of you who care. This is the Sunday closest to October 31st, the day that in 1517 Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a door in Wittenberg. In other words, his post went viral in those days. (laughs) And do you know what the first of the 95 theses is? Here's what Luther put. Very first one, top of his list. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So I suspect Luther was looking around at the spirituality of his day and even in his own life and recognizing, look, we don't deal with this repentance very much. And when Jesus said to repent, it wasn't like do it once and then you're done or do it whenever is necessary. The idea of repenting coincides with belief, and it is a day-to-day, moment-by-moment function where we are repenting and we are believing. Our repentance leads to belief because repentance is an acknowledgement that we are in need, but then we are against that. We see God sent Jesus who paid the price for our need. When we believe, what are we believing? We are believing that Jesus came in the flesh, became like us. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He was crushed in order to pay the penalty for that. And so we believe, which reminds us that, well, we've sinned. And faith and repentance, faith and repentance, those two wings by which we fly toward our goal. They are necessary. And it's not even just a theological concoction of, you know, some ancient um, monastic and Martin Luther. But Paul, as he writes to the Colossian church, he says in Colossians 2.6, just as you received him, so therefore live in him. Well, how do we come to Jesus? How do we receive Jesus? It's through faith and repentance, acknowledging that we are sinners, and yet believing that Jesus is the gift that God gave, that not only paid for our sin, that we would be forgiven, but in whom we have righteousness, the reconciliation with God. We believe those promises, and we repent. It's faith and repentance, faith and repentance. And Luther picked up on that and saying, look, all of life is to be lived out in the same way that we received him. This is the practice of God because we're even reminded that though God is great and holy, he also has loved us and he has paid the ultimate price for us in Jesus. That'll lead us to have good thoughts of God. Recognize his love and we love because he loved us. Second is prayer which I know for many is a chore. 
I'm not sure why, but sometimes I share that with you. But really all prayer is this, is the conversational aspect of a love relationship with God. You speak to him. Well, about what? Well, whatever. You want to talk about your parking place? Go ahead. But there's so much to talk about. And sometimes you'd be in God's presence and you would be praying without even using words, just as if you are, uh, have been married for a long time or uh, just, you just, you just know. But the Holy Spirit is, is praying, but we are in that communion. But it, it is indispensable to have a relationship with God that doesn't include conversation with him any more than you have a relationship with somebody else in this life that you don't converse with. Well, isn't prayer simply just one-sided? Well, only if God doesn't speak. But God does still speak. We've already heard Paul in the Romans saying he speaks through creation. We can know about God, and he tells us we learn things. There's things that we, we be awed by creation. I can describe things for you all morning long. That's not going to be the same as if you stand on a mountaintop and look down below or stand on the shores and see the vast seashore. There are things that go beyond our ability to put into words that we experience in this creation that help us to understand the awesomeness and the greatness and the majesty of God that is in creation. And God is continuing to speak through his creation. And so that's why some of you feel much closer to God when you're out than when you're in this room. And it's not a wrong thing. But we need to be mindful that in creation that God speaks, he speaks rather opaque. In other words, it is probably an abstract speaking, abstract art. Maybe it's impressionist art. It is not an oil painting. But he continues to speak perfectly through his son Jesus Christ and every word in his scripture that he has given to, for his revelation. And he speaks even through his word today because he's given us his Holy Spirit to dwell within everyone who believes enable us to hear from God, and that explains how he guides us and directs us with understanding. And so prayer and listening to God speak, that's the conversational aspect of the relationship that we have with God. And I'm going to give one more. Certainly my, my list is not exhaustive, but these are vitally important. Serving other people is a way in which we can know God and relate to him. I am greatly disturbed about what I, I see in our culture and in the evangelical church and even in the PCA. And I pray desperately that it doesn't hit us as a church but I don't know why we would be immune if others are not. But there is a tremendous divide that is arising, a fracture, between churches that are orthodox in their theology and view of Scripture and those who are engaging the communities, particularly the poor. There's been a problem in the past that I won't go into all of the history, uh, but it used to be Shorthand is, you know, mercy ministries, ministering to the poor, that's what liberals do. We teach the word. Can you hear Lucy in this? And 
And because of the intolerance in our culture that is seeping its way into the church, now there's almost this pressure to choose sides. And it's ridiculous. I'm foolish enough to believe that those who are most orthodox ought to be the ones who are doing the most because we have the most reason to do it. Why? Because Jesus said so. Speaking to a crowd of people, he said, this is what it's going to be like when the kingdom comes. Jesus is going to say to some of the people who are crying, Lord, Lord, get away from me. I don't know you. Because when I was hungry and when I was thirsty and when I was naked and when I was poor and I was in jail, you didn't care. Actually, it's a lot stronger than that, but I'd get fired if I said what the implication was. And their response, like a good PCA person, good conservative evangelical, when did we see you? I mean, we've been looking, our noses have been in the book, and, and Jesus says, whenever you saw anyone who was hungry and thirsty and naked and poor and in prison, and what you didn't do for them, you didn't do for me. And I hear those words, and I think, how do we get caught up in these divide? And what Jesus is doing in this is he's demonstrating what we call a radical identification with the poor. Now, it's been abused, and it's been distorted, as if somehow if we engage in those things, that's the essence of what Christianity is all about. It's not, because you can do those things till death and be incredibly fruitful for it, but unless you are in Christ through faith and repentance, and unless you are presenting a message of those to those that you're ministering to, that their ultimate hope is in Christ through faith and repentance, we just create a bunch of well-adjusted sinners who are still destined for their way to hell, or we're going with them as well. Not because of lack of effort, but because the only way to salvation, the only way to relationship with God, the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ. But when Christ is in us, He is saying, when we minister to those, particularly those who are in need the most, we somehow know something about him. We somehow are relating to him. How does that work? I have no idea. I can speculate. I'm praying for understanding. But I'm still limited to know All I know is it's indispensable. And Jesus says that as we minister among others, particularly those who are poor, it doesn't mean that that they are Jesus, but we can learn about Jesus. We can connect with Jesus through that ministry. And we wonder, can we know God in a personal way? And Jesus says, absolutely yes. I want to finish with two things. First, I want you to hear these words from J.I. Packer, his wonderful book, Knowing God. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me, and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, 
And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that this love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. This is, can we know God personally? Yes, because God knows us. A.W. Tozer told this story. He said, imagine someone conscious of his past sins but who genuinely wants to know God comes. How would he cautiously inquire? He might ask something like this. If I were to come to God, how will he act toward me? What will I find him to be? What will he be like? To which Tozer responds, he will be exactly like Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to know God, you come through me. If you know me, you know God. Because I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If you know Jesus, you know God. Father, we thank you for these words you have given. We may ponder in our minds and treasure in our hearts. May you make them alive by your spirits. Bless us, Lord, we pray in Christ. Amen.